All right. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. Man, it's great to be with the West Northwest. Okay, I was telling somebody this yesterday. The Northwest region of the Garden State Church of the New York City Church of Christ. Wow. Write a song about that. I got here this morning. It's been a long time since I've got to come to the Sheridan. And I was so excited when I got here at 930. I parked my car right outside where service is supposed to be. Walked in. I was like, I got the perfect spot. What made it worse was that there was a Christian song in Korean being sung in that section. I was like, oh, this is our church. Great. I didn't realize it's Korean, of course. But it was like, this is our church. I walk into that whole section on the far side of the hotel only to realize we're by the smell of bacon, right? But, uh, man, it's great to be together. I look out and see you guys. Great seeing Kent and Annie Brown here. They're former Jerseyans. You guys in Seattle now? Is that right? Wow. Great to see you guys. Welcome back. Now, um, today, I'm excited to preach. Phil was supposed to preach. He and uh, Leslie just got back from Madrid. However, he's not feeling well. And so in order to not get anyone sick, he called me up and said, Matt, can you preach today? And uh, it's an honor. It's an honor to talk to family here. I really feel like I'm amongst family. You know, seeing Dorothy, and Dorothy's been like a, an auntie and a grandma to me. And oh my goodness. I mean, I could just go around and say it all, but I'm just honored to speak today. You know, we um, were, it's January 17th. Is that right? January 15th? Let's, let's go 15th. Okay. Today's the 15th. And as I was looking out today, I realized there's a few faces here who won't be here next Sunday. And so we have David Stoudinger going back to Carnegie Mellon tomorrow for school. We have Matt Ibrahim, right, who's also going back to NJIT. And uh, I, I think it's only appropriate, right? The Bible says when one person mourns, we mourn with them. When they rejoice, we rejoice with them. When they prepare for school, we prepare with them, right? And so in honor of our students going back to school this week, I was thinking we can start off our service today with a little Bible final. Does that sound good? A little exam. It's syllabus week here in the campus ministry in the church. But a little Bible trivia. If you have the answer, go ahead and shout it out. Who is the oldest person in the Bible? Methuselah. All right, very good. What is Methuselah's age? Anybody have that? 969. I think I heard it from somebody back there. Good for you. Nice. Love that. All right, how many books are in the Bible? 66. Nice. Old Testament. How many in the Old Testament? 39. Nice. New Testament. Quick math. 27. Nice. What is the 15th book of the Old Testament? Here we go. Nice. Dave got it. Who's got the proper 15th book of the, the Old Testament? Esther, not Esther. Not Esther. All right. Three seconds. Countdown clock. Not Second Chronicles. 15th book is Ezra. There you go. You're doing like the song in the back of your mind, right? Last but not least, name one of the women that financially supported Jesus's ministry. Financially supported. Mary, right? Mary's one. Anybody else? Ma yeah, Mary Magdalene, right? Susanna, Joanna. Somebody, uh, somebody once said Martha. And I was like, well, you know, Martha opened her home to him. That counts. But financially supported, you have these amazing women that really helped the backbone of Jesus's ministry. You got to love that it was a woman-owned business. That was Jesus's ministry. It's not a business, but you know what I mean. So why do we do this, right? I love 
that we can answer these questions. And that's what I've, I've always appreciated about our fellowship and our community here is how much we love the Bible. And I was taught at the age of six years old, the order of the books of the Bible. I say the Bible with people, I'll tell them, I know every book in the Bible. I haven't, you know, I've read them all, but I know the books in the Bible, right? And that's something that I love about our church. And that's what Jesus loves too, is how much we appreciate his word. But he also, throughout scripture, really makes the point that we not just need to know his word, but we have to hold to it. And that, that, that's the backbone of what we do as a church. As we decided, many of us, to make Jesus Lord of our life, whether it was a year ago or five years ago, 10, 20, 30 years ago, at some point we sat down and said, I'm done with the he said, she said. I don't want to just hear it from somebody else. I want to hear God's word for myself. I don't want to just hear it. I want to obey it. I want to let it change me. And Paul says to Timothy, who in his own respect was a very respectable young man, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, in the ESV translation, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I love that Paul says it that way. He goes, keep a close watch on what you believe and on what you do. And if you persist or you persevere in these things, it'll save both yourself and it'll save all those that you influence. Keep a close watch is a cool word. I like that. What do you keep a close watch on in your life? Anybody? What do you keep a close watch on? Your kids, your budget, right? Your time, your pets, your money, all these different things. Why? Because if you're not careful, they can get away from you. And Paul tells Timothy, Keep a close watch. Keep a close watch on this because it's so important, but it can so easily get away from us, right? And Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 12, uh, the Hebrews writer warns the church. He goes, guys, you know, the sin that so easily entangles. You know, as we're fighting to fall in love with God and to serve him and to serve his community, we have to also remember that there are forces working against us to distract to dissuade, to confuse, but ultimately to keep us away from where we ought to be. Amen? I say that for myself. I'm amazed how easily, how easy it is, if I'm not paying close attention to my life and my spirituality, to drift to places that I told myself I would never go. To wake up one day and be like, whoa, how did I get here? This is not where I want to be. And so Paul tells Timothy, Keep a close watch. Focus on it. Take care of it. That way you will save both yourself and ultimately to save those that we help and care about as well. So go with me here in a second. I'm not a history teacher. That's Tom's department here. But uh, the Byzantine Empire. Anybody heard of the Byzantine Empire? If you haven't, welcome to the club, okay? So the Byzantine Empire was an empire that back in the 1400s, 1300s, kind of ruled Europe. They were epic powerhouses all throughout Europe, and their hub was a place called Constantinople, right? And so Constantinople was where they kind of centered all that they were doing. And the Ottoman Empire, around that time in 1453, decided we're going to fight against the Byzantine Empire, try and, try and take it down. And so a war broke out in Constantinople. 
And by the looks of it, they're pretty sure the Byzantine Empire, the powerhouse that they were, were going to be able to persist and defend and win this war. It was the most fortified city of the time. I mean, they had the archers on the roof. They had walls that were 20 feet thick in concrete or whatever material they used in that time, but 20 feet thick. And so as the fighting endured and went on and went on, it looked like it was they were going to lose. But then all of the sudden, the Ottoman Empire broke in and the fighting shifted. And then the empire, the Byzantine Empire fell and they collapsed. And that's why we don't know about them anymore unless you're Tom Hughes. And so those who survived were perplexed. They go, how on earth did that happen? We were supposed to win. We had the war. We had the materials. We had everything that we needed to be victorious. How did we fall? And after careful inspection, the fighting, the walls were fine. But after careful inspection after the war, they realized that the front gate was left open. And so the fighting happened. The walls were thick, but the front door was left open. And so the Ottoman Empire marched right through and destroyed them from the inside. And that's what took out the Byzantine Empire. You know, I say that to say, as we come together to fall in love with God and grow in our relationship with him, we have the fortified walls. We really do. You're here at church on Sunday. I mean, you have relationships in the church. You, you're part of your life team. You're connected with one another. You read your Bible right? You pray, you confess your sins, you're connected. All these things are so good. But we have to be really careful with such thick walls that exist against the attacks of Satan. We have to be really careful with the most basic thing to not leave the front door down. And that's what I want to take a few minutes today to talk about is fortifying your front door. And this was, like I said, a very basic thing when we decided early on to fall in love with Jesus and to give our life to him. We said early on, God, what you say is what I'll do. I may not like it. I may not understand it totally and completely, but if you say it, I will do it. That's enough for me. And I, we're talking about it today, really for my sake, because I know for me, I can get a little bit, I'm like a, a gold Olympic medalist in excuses. I know how to bend and twist and tuck to get away from doing the things I know I ought to do. And so I'm preaching to myself. And so if this helps you, amen. All right. I want to talk a little bit today about um, fortifying your front door, but really this idea of Jesus, just say the word. Your word is enough. You know, our greatest defense in our battle for righteousness and holiness and spirituality is always gonna be holding to God's word. God says, right, uh, Paul and Jesus say, you know, his word is the sword of the Holy Spirit, right? If you're trying to change in your character and be transformed, I can either give you a steak knife, right? If I'm trying to tell you to go cut down a tree, I can either give you a steak knife to go cut that down, or I can give you a chainsaw. One of them is gonna be more effective, right? God's word is the chainsaw of our transformation. He gives us his word to totally transform who we are. His word is what bolsters the shield of faith that extinguishes the flaming arrows. 
God's word is the very thing on judgment day that he's going to sit down with us and ask, did you know and did you do what is in here? God's word is the precursor for truth and freedom. The things that we so desperately want in our life is truth and freedom. And it has to start, it always starts with God, just say the word. Your word is enough for me, amen? There are examples in the New Testament, especially with Jesus, where Jesus looks out and sees amazing faith. And maybe you've heard this before. Jesus either says to them, whoa, your faith is amazing. Or he says to them, whoa, there are some problems here. And we wanna have the kind of faith that amazes Jesus in the right way. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter six, verse one. Mark chapter six, verse one. You guys still with me? All right. So it says here in Mark chapter six, first starting in verse one, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these, uh, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and in his, home, in his hometown. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Whoa. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Jesus went home so excited to be around his family, his friends, those who helped raise him, those who helped change his uh, you know, Mediterranean diapers, whatever that looked like at the time. I mean, those were his people, but he showed up and it just didn't work out there. He had to go on to another village because his hometown, his place of respite, where he wanted to be, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good situation. And so what happens? Jesus shows up in his hometown and he begins preaching. And initially they're like, whoa, where did this guy get such great teaching? This is really good. And then they stop and go, well, but we, we know who he is. We know his mom. We know his brothers and his sisters. We know his cousins. We know what he used to do. They actually, in, in you know, this, this culture, it was offensive to not address somebody by we know his, he's the son of Joseph. Instead, they actually take offense by saying, isn't he the son of Mary? They downgrade him a little bit. And what they start doing is making excuses for why what Jesus is teaching, as powerful and amazing as they are, they go, we don't have to do this. And they start twisting and tucking and dipping, and they start giving reasons, logically explaining away why Jesus's words don't need to apply to them. You ever done that, church? You ever heard a scripture, and then for whatever reason, go, ah, I know I should do that, but maybe not right now, or maybe a younger me, or maybe not that intense. Maybe share my faith? Really? I, I, maybe when I'm out, I'll do it. We can look at scriptures. I do this. I can look at scriptures and somehow, some way, logically explain 
why I don't need to do that right now. And Jesus says that and goes, whoa, this is not good. You gotta be careful because that's not a place that you wanna be. But now on the other side of things, in Luke chapter seven, verses one through 10, we're gonna pick up in verse six. This is the faith that woes Jesus. Jesus is blown away by this kind of faith. And the hope here is that his faith, this kind of faith is the faith that we emulate as well. So in Luke chapter seven, I'll give a little bit of context and we're gonna pick up in verse six. There is a, a centurion, a Roman official who is not a Christian, who's not even a Jew, who's somebody who probably believes in multiple polytheistic gods of the time. And he has a servant that he cares about deeply who's sick. And so he hears about this miracle worker, this man, Jesus. And what happens here is amazing. He goes and he, he sends his other servants to Jesus to essentially say, hey, I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. Just come to my house and you will heal my servant. And, uh, and Jesus is like, all right, let's go. And so in verse six, we pick up here. And he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority when soldiers under me with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have found, not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What a great story, right? You know, Jesus has this centurion man, a person who is not part of their faith community. And he turns to the entire crowd. I love when Jesus does this. He takes an individual example and then goes, hey, everybody, watch this. He goes, this person who's not in our community gets it. In fact, he gets it the way I want all of you to get it. That's really a powerful thing. It's such a simple thing. The man recognized that Jesus heard some words about Jesus, heard that he was capable, saw his track record and said, you know what, Jesus, all you need to do is just say the word and it will come to fruition. All you need to do is just say the word. I have authority as a soldier. I tell these people to go and they go. I know you're not just a director of authority. You are the king of kings, the Lord of Lord, whatever it is, you say it and it happens. And that's the faith, the only example of faith in, in the Bible where Jesus goes, whoa, this is amazing. And that's the kind of faith, church, that we want to fight to emulate. A faith that doesn't twist and turn and try and logically explain away why scriptures in our life don't need to apply to us right now, but a heart that says, you say it and I'll do it. You say it and I'll do it. You know, our college students we are not perfect by any means. I don't want to glorify young people, but I, I love studying the Bible with people and just watching as these young students hear the word of God and they go, wow, I have to change that in my dating relationship? Say less, and they do it. I'm like, whoa, I want to have that heart. 
And what's amazing is that that was the heart that all of us fighting for Jesus have, and it's in there. Whether it's there right now or not, that's okay. Because the reality is that we so easily have to focus and come back and keep an eye on the things that can drift. In fact, I think it's something that we all need to focus on and work on at times. Amen? I want to close out here with three examples where Jesus, Jesus or Paul, it's God's word regardless, Jesus or Paul says a scripture, says something where we ought to respond, just say the word. Three things I think hopefully will help us this week as we're going forward, especially in 2023. Three scriptures where it's simple, it's straightforward. This isn't like brand new teachings, all this different stuff. But what's amazing is that sometimes scriptures that we're so familiar with have that lullaby effect. I've heard it, I know it, but we have to stop and ask ourselves, how am I doing with this right now, right? So go with me on this. In John chapter 15, verse five, this is the first one where Jesus, we just have to say to Jesus, just say the word. In John 15, verse five, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, let me explain to you the Matt Rupert version of this, of this scripture. You guys ready for this? I hear it and I go, apart from me, you can do nothing. I go, but God, I haven't been close to you. I have been apart from you and I have done something. What do you mean I can't do anything, right? I've done this, that, and the third, and I wasn't reading my Bible or praying the amount that I, you know, all this different stuff. And I can start explaining away why I don't need to be so dependent and close to Jesus. But Jesus says straight up, he goes, apart from me, not one thing you can do. If I'm not involved, it's like trying to turn the lights on in your house, but you're disconnected to the power source. Because you can do nothing apart from me. And we look at that and go, wow, all right, well, I need not to read my Bible because someone is going to check in on me or tell me what to do, but I need to read my Bible because I recognize that all the good things I want to do are impossible if God doesn't show up. I don't want to, I don't have to pray. I get to pray. I need to pray. Otherwise, all the efforts that I'm doing are meaningless without God. I think one of the most dangerous things that we can experience as followers of Jesus is being blessed and being proud. Think about that for a second. In our life, when good things are happening, but we're proud and disconnected from God, it's a very dangerous place to be. Because you start thinking and recognizing, well, it's working out, it's doing this, it's doing that. God's like, no. He's in the business of opposing the proud so that we can learn to depend on him and trust in him. So when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, remain in me, we say to him, just say the word. If that's what I need to do, then God, I will remain in you daily. And that might look different for each of us, how we pray, how we read the Bible, how we practice our spiritual disciplines, but nevertheless, God, your word says it and I will do it. Go with me on this one. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, a scripture that was really transformative for me. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What a great scripture, right? I mean, that's a whole sermon right there. God says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to one another, what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Something that blows my mind, church, is that for every temptation that comes our way, I don't know if you realize this, but every temptation that comes our way, God is the filter. God stops, evaluates whatever temptations are gonna come to us. And if something is beyond our ability to handle, he goes, she can't do that right now. We're not gonna give it to her. He can't do that right now. We're not gonna give it to him. Uh, He can handle this. All right, we're gonna give it to him. You know, church, in our life, there is nothing that we are given or there is no temptation that is afforded to us that you cannot say no to. Amen. There's no challenge, no struggle, no family issue. There's no, um, oh man, forgive that person. I can't forgive that person. Jeez, well, if God put that person in your life and allowed that person to do that thing to you, then he's put you in a place where you can forgive, where you can love where you can say no to temptation, to impurity, and whatever that might be. I remember as a a young student, uh, I was a disciple for probably about a year and a half in the teen ministry in New Jersey. I was uh, kind of born and raised in Randolph, New Jersey, and so I was in Randolph High School. And I remember one night really struggling with this thought, if, if this thing were to happen to me in school, I don't think it's possible for me to say no to that temptation. And I started freaking out, right? I'm 17 years old. I'm freaking out. I'm having a tough, I call Larry Craig at midnight. I'm like, Larry, can you help me out here? But he was sleeping, right? His phone was off. I think I called Rob Novak. I called a couple of different people, but I knew Bobby Ritter was on this like very weird sleep schedule where he was probably going to be awake at 2 a.m. And so I called Bobby. I'm like, Bobby, how can I be a disciple if I literally cannot say no to this thing? And Bobby very simply looks at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 with me and says, Matt, anything you're going through, any temptation you experience, you can say no to. And that, as simple as it was, was so transformative for me. And it ought to be transformative to us. You know, we are never in a place, church, where we can't say no to the struggles that we're wrestling with. And so if we're gonna hold to Jesus's idea here, just say the word, God, if I can fight, I will fight. I will say no. And then the best part here, and this is the old NIV, where it says he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it, so you can stand up under it. And I don't know about you, but I kind of think of this like big boulder being dropped on me. That's what temptation feels like sometimes. It's this big boulder being dropped on me and God goes, I'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. It's like we can catch it and then flex on it, right? That's what God wants us to do in our struggles is to be able to catch it, but also uses it for his glory in a transformative way. Last one here, as we're thinking about just say the word, Galatians 6, verse nine, such a powerful verse. Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong in the family of believers. Brothers and sisters, 
it is always worth persevering. Jesus says, do not give up in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good for at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. You know, there are people in our lives that we are praying for and fighting for and hoping that one day they change. And it's so hard to look out and see people who are just constantly hurting themselves, not changing. And it's tempting to give up on those people. But God says, do not grow weary in doing good because you will reap a harvest. You know, maybe for some of us, finances or, you know, it's the, the longing for companionship or whatever they may be. And it's, it's so tempting to grow weary and to give up. But God promises us that if we continue to persevere, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Now, please understand me while I say this. And I'm not, I definitely do not want to minimize anyone's struggles. I don't think God promises us. Uh, he definitely does not promise us a life free from hardship, nor does he promise us companionship, nor does he promise us that the people that we care about and love about will change. I, I wish it were that case. There are people in my life that I wish would, would decide to, to do things differently, but it's not quite the case yet. But when he says we will reap a harvest, guaranteed, I think the idea is that whatever struggles we endure and go through and we persevere through, God is turning you into the person that you were designed to be. It's the hardship and the suffering that you endure where you unlock and experience and become the person that God wants you to be. And what's amazing is that that is more valuable than gold. That's more valuable than anything we could have imagined for. And so when it's so suffering and hardship and in the thick of things where we just want to give up and turn in and stop fighting, God invites us, give me a little more. Don't give up. You're almost there. Keep persevering. And in doing so, his promise, his guarantee is that you will become a better, stronger, more mature person as a result. Amen. And so as we're coming into a close here, church, I want to encourage us to allow God's word to be enough. As you read the scriptures this week, we call it your quiet time, right? As you read your Bible and pray this week, this is something that I've been practicing for about 12 years now, is that when you read it, asking yourself at the end of your time, what am I going to do as a result of what I just read? Letting God's word be practical and applicable in your life. Because I believe this is the foundation for a healthy, strong defense against the, the, the devil, but also the opportunity and the basis for growth, for maturity, for thriving, and through, for our transformation. Let's close out together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your concern for us. We're grateful for every thought and feeling and challenge that we go through that you never allow us to handle or you never allow us to experience more than we can handle. You love and so respect the simple faith that just takes you at your word. Thank you, God, for giving us your word that's so accessible in our life, that we have it on our phones, we have it on our shelves, we have it everywhere we go. But Lord, help us not simply be hearers of the word and not doers, but to do what it says. Lord, thank you that the best days are ahead of us for each of us. But God, give us, help us, humble us, uh, refine us so that we hear your word 
obey it and allow it to transform our lives. God, we love you. Thank you so much for your church. In your son's name we pray, amen.